0: Hi, I'm Max Kaiser. This is the Kaiser Report. You know, Twitter's got a lot of crazy things going on. A lot of people, you know, Twitterizing. And occasionally somebody pops up with something really insightful, really interesting. Stacy.
1: Yes, I had a very interesting engagement on Twitter right before Christmas and it's really relevant to all of our stories that we've been focusing on, including Cantillon Effect and money printing by the central banks around the world. Of course, the European Central Bank has stopped uh, asset purchases this month. So they're ending quantitative easing for the moment anyway. And here's a tweet that I responded to. This is from Mark J. Valick. Gigantic ECB money printing QE program will end after 1,371 days. That was from March of 2015 to December 2018. Total money created 2.6 trillion euros. That's per day, an, uh, an amount equal to euro uh, 1.896.42596, so almost 2 billion euros per day. Per person in the Eurozone, that equaled to 7,614 euros. He asked, everybody who did not receive this sum of money was robbed. Inflation is theft. The the thing that really interested me was that uh, per person amount, so 7,600 euros. If you're not richer by that in those three years of, uh, of money printing by the ECB, then that's been stolen from you. That amount has been stolen from you. Francis Coppola, who is not Francis Ford Coppola, but a woman, (laughs) she's an economist in the United Kingdom, and she responded to my retweet, what inflation? I pointed out just the quickest uh, inflation that I could find, which is from the actual Euro statistics website. The European Union keeps all their own data, and this is what they had on their own website. And this is house prices across the Eurozone. I pointed out that's March 2015, exactly when they started money printing, quantitative easing from the ECB. Remember, they were quite late to it. House prices had been falling, so they started soaring. She wrote back, correlation does not equal causation.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. That's, that's how this whole thing got started. And, um, you know, she's an interesting economist. She, she tends to go against anyone who who has any real-world experience in the economy. She's an academic. She, she'll, if you tell her, hey, um, you know, your house is on fire, she'll quick look at a book and decide whether or not that's true or not, and how to act, right? So she has no practical experience with anything. So half the time, she makes comments that are uh, somewhat germane to what's going on. Half the time, it just sounds like a lunatic. But this was the beginning of, of, this, of, this, of this exchange.
1: It seems to be quite obvious that, okay, correlation does not necessarily always equal causation, but that was pretty convincing, that something changed in March of 2015. The central bank started printing. Well, we happened to have interviewed, and I happen to uh, know, uh, he follows me on Twitter, Danny Blanchflower. He was a member of the Bank of England's Monetary Policy Committee. He responded and jumped in. The entire point of QE was to raise asset prices from someone who knows and voted for it. Frances Coppola then went silent on this. She didn't respond any further to this. But here's an actual central banker, and she, uh, you know, her, her position in this debate had been that there's no, there's no inflation. There's nowhere you look, can you see inflation? Uh, the, the, the central banks need to print more, maybe, that's what she wants, or, like, that. there's no sign of inflation, even though we see the unrest in France the Gilets movement, we see unrest across Europe. This is a result of this. These are the people who are complaining about purchasing power. When your income has not increased, when certainly not at the pace that house prices, your basic fundamental needs, you know, you need a house, you need shelter, you need food. If those prices go up faster than your income, you feel anger. And here he is saying the entire point of QE was to raise asset prices. And that's an asset price. She got busted.
0: And, and typically she disappeared from the, from the debate because, uh, like I said, her, her house suddenly was on fire and her, she had to go find a book somewhere, some theory that quote, and, and, but she has no practical experience and has no real, real world um, kind of knowledge base that was useful in any way. And yeah, so Danny Blanchfauer said this is the stated policy of the Bank of England to increase. Uh, these prices to get, you know, the the inflation equivalent moving. You know, he identified asset prices as the inflation equivalent that needed to be goosed by money printing. So it wasn't a coincidence. That was a direct result of money printing to create that chart, that graph, that increase in inflation. Now, governments, what she's referring to, Francis, is that governments in the U.S. and the U.K. don't include houses in their inflation calculation. They removed it years ago, because it would require them then to recognize that there was inflation, and then would require them to raise rates and to fight inflation, which might also raise wages. And then their friends in the industrial sector who control the government and control the banks would have to pay more. So they were eliminated house prices to avoid the cost of, of labor uh, as part of this massive wealth redistribution enabled by central banks, and given academic cover by academics like Francis McDonald or McDormand or McC- Coppola. Coppola, Francis Coppola, that's it.
1: Yeah. so I continued my conversation because she had dropped out of the conversation. Uh, you know, it's up to her if she doesn't want to participate, that's fine. But I continued my conversation with Danny Blanchfauer because I thought that was quite remarkable that here he was admitting that the entire point of QE was to raise asset prices. And now why I continued to highlight that is that who owns most assets? It's the very wealthy. The wealthier you are, the more assets you have You could see that uh, across the board is uh, an asset price is also stocks. Eighty-four uh, percent of all stocks in the stock markets are owned by the top 10 percent. So I pointed that out to him. I said, that's going to cause a Cantillon effect and that's caused Brexit, that's caused Gilets jaunes, that's caused, caused Trump. So you know you have to see this. He, was responding to my, my continued on the policy of why they, why they had to do QE. He said, if you can't lower the price of money, you increase the quantity. In the UK, the FTSE fell from May 2008 and picked up at the end of February 2009, just as the Monetary Policy Committee moved to asset purchases. The point of QE was to flood markets with buyers, pushing others to take more risk and buy more assets.
0: Well, that, that, that's right. You know, that's where Danny Blanchard is talking his book in that case. He's not really being completely intellectually honest at that point either. The point of his money printing was to bail out the banks. And it, whether he knows it overtly or subconsciously, he must within that brain of his understand that that's pretty much what he was doing. He's, uh, he's in the employ of a bank who needed a bailout. Look, what I've said all along is that if you want to avoid the social unrest, if you want to avoid gilets jaunes, If you want to avoid uh, the global insurrection against banker occupation, pitchforks and torches in the street, all that 15, 16, 17, 18, 20 trillion dollars of money printing that you've uh, been engaged with to bail out zombie banks could have very easily just gone into raising minimum wage and you would have had an increase in your GDP, uh, and you would have had uh, all the effects you want, but without getting burned at the stake.
1: Here he's pointing out, and this is something we've noted, and our guests, including in the second half, Steve Keen has pointed out, that they printed up money. He was looking to flood the markets in order to convince people to take on more risk. Well, the the top 10%, the top 1%, the top 0.1% were not hurting. Uh, maybe relative to their position in 2006 and 7, they were down some, but they were still. They might have been down from 20 billion net worth to 10 billion. The fact is, they, he could have. They could have chosen to instead just send 7,000 euro, 7,614 euros to every household in Europe. That would have targeted. That would have been QE for the people. That would have been um, money for the masses. That would have been something that had caused not the Cantillon effect, which is what they've created instead, this instability of the wealth and income gap whereby all the free money went to a very select few because when they're p- flooding the markets, what he's me- with buyers pushing others to take more risk and, and buy more assets, He's there's only a s- small percentage of people, entities, corporations in the world that get that money from the likes of Danny Blanchard, from the central bankers, and that's Wall Street and its... The corrupt banks. The corrupt banks. When he says
0: he's trying to encourage people to take more risk, he doesn't bother to add in his analysis somewhere, maybe in the footnotes, when he says people, he means bankers. Okay, He wants bankers to lend out to keep their- so there's a money multiplying effect. But they weren't because the central banks were paying them for the money that they were given a positive spread. So it sat there on the zombie bank's balance sheet as a bailout for the banks. He knows it, but he's using sophistry and double talk to hide his- what he does you know he's
1: no less of financial charlatan than it's, francis it's cognitive uh, dissonance they they think that they're doing they have they've, they've, they've he's achieved something he himself is pointing out we wanted house prices to go up house prices did go up we wanted stock markets to go up how uh, stock markets are like double or triple or quadruple since the bottom so they did succeed he did succeed however the re, the result of the uh, political chaos That is is unraveling around, you know, happening around the world from the Gilets Jaunes to Trump to Brexit and others coming down the pike. That's a different thing. Now we also have new uh, ideas and leaders coming up. We have Alexandria Ocasio Cortez out of Queens, who what she's proposing is a new Green Deal. Well, of course. Who else has just proposed that, and that's Yanis Varoufakis, he was in New York recently proposing that. He's proposing that for Europe, and essentially it's similar to money for the masses, it's similar to quantitative easing for the people, in that the governments and the central banks are basically going to pump the credit towards building new infrastructure that we need anyway. We need it anyway in order to advance to the next level of capitalism uh, in a post-carbon world. Look, this is
0: what Danny Blanchflower is suggesting. Let's say you got a bar. Let's say Bill Gates' net worth is 60 billion. Yes. Let's say there's a bar with 60 people in that bar. The average wealth of the people in that bar is is a billion dollars, right? So Blanchflower is saying, I'm going to walk into that bar and we're going to give Bill Gates another 60 billion dollars.
1: Yes. And now the average wealth of that bar is $2 that, billion. That's exactly what central bankers did, is they, they gave it to the likes of Bill Gates and hoped that he would distribute it to people in need. And so, claimed that so, they were successful because yeah. the average wealth of everybody has just gone up. But the, they don't have any spendable wealth. But the, the way things happen is Bill Gates' wealth went up $60 billion, and it's the equivalent in all of Wall Street and the elite. And what you do is you start to justify it. You deserved it that something innately good about you makes you worthy of this. And so it doesn't trickle down because you're like, well, those people should just get a job. (laughs) No, they'll say, look, their worth just went up by 100%. Yeah.
0: You know, it's delusional. It's magical thinking. It's central bank thinking.
1: And of course, all these property bubbles and stock bubbles are crashing now. So that's where we are. And now you're going to get torched. You could have
0: just given the money to people and avoid getting torched. Now you're going to get torched. (laughs) Maybe you'll learn next time, Danny. All right, we're going to take a break. When we come back, talk to the magnificent Steve Keen. Don't go away. Welcome back to the Kaiser Report. I'm Max Kaiser. Time now to go to Amsterdam and speak with Steve Keen, Professor Steve Keen, author of Debunking Economics. Steve, welcome back.
2: Good to be here, Max and Stacey. So
0: All righty. You know, we got to talk about the Australian property market uh, for reasons that will become apparent quite soon here. So, the Australian property market, Sydney is down 10%. The uh, impossible has happened. Is this just the beginning, or will the government and central bank come to the rescue once again, Steve Keen?
2: Well, I think it's uh, it, it's it's been uh, the the world's longest pump and dump scheme, and uh, the pump is now over and the dump is occurring. And it's you know, the reason Australia managed to avoid tumbling into the global financial crisis in two thousand and eight uh, is fundamentally some good government policy, which was a huge stimulus. Uh, actually done by one of the guys who's currently being grilled by the Royal Commission into Banking, uh, Ken Henry, who was then Treasury Secretary, who advised the then Labor uh, Labor Party government led by Kevin Rudd to, quote-unquote, go hard, go early, go households. So they threw money at the household sector, and that's uh, government money. Literally every everybody with a pulse uh, got a $1,000 to spend, as they called a the tax rebate. Uh, but at the same time, they also restarted the housing bubble by... Doubling for existing houses and trebling for new houses, what they called the first home owners boost, and I called the first home vendors boost, because it went from giving us every every um, new buyer from seven thousand Australian dollars, roughly five thousand US, to twenty one thousand dollars Australian to buy a house, and in Victoria. If you bought an existing, a new house outside the metropolitan area, they gave you 35,000 Australian dollars. Here's cash, go buy a house. Well, guess that what to the house prices? Then when that started to run out of steam, the, the, the uh, central bank there, the Reserve Bank of Australia, cut interest rates uh, quite dramatically and encouraged a whole lot of what they call investor housing. And then the so-called regulator otherwise known as Ponzi Merchant uh, Central, uh, called the Australian Prudential Regulation Authority, approved the development of what they called interest-only mortgages, which meant for for five of the 25 years of a mortgage, you just paid the interest bill. For the next 20, you paid the interest plus principal. So when the switchover occurred, the amount of money you paid increased by 40%. Now, of course, you never did that because, of course, house prices always rise. So after five years, you flipped the house and you made a profit on the increase in the, in the value of the house without ever having to pay any of the principal loan off. Wonderful system. Could Nothing could ever go wrong. Well, and, and to make it easier still, um, the the banks worked out your living expenses for you. So rather than you having to say what you actually spent, they calculated it for you. And the National Australia Bank has on, on the Royal Commission website, they have to call the living expenses calculator. And you'll be happy to know, Max, that if you and Stacey decided to have a kid, It'd be best to raise it in Sydney, because it costs you a mere $7 a day to raise, educate, clothe, and otherwise process your baby.
0: That's great. Well, I'm a huge sperm donor in Australia, but I'm not sure I get a a tax rebate for that. No, I'm only joking about that. But, you know, Steve, you're an economist. Let me ask you a question here. So, people always talk about Venezuela as being an economic basket case, because the Venezuelan government keeps just giving away money to everybody and it seems like the socialism, the Venezuela, doesn't work, and it's a failure. But what you're describing there is the government giving away money. So how is that different than Venezuela, other than the fact that instead of giving away cash, they're essentially giving away houses?
2: Well, they're giving away houses, but as long as you borrowed money from the banks to buy them, and that led to Australian households going from being heavily levered, but not the worst on the planet, So the second worst household in terms of level of household debt to uh, income and household debt to GDP, second worst on the planet behind Switzerland. Uh, And Switzerland of course runs a massive trade surplus, whereas Australia runs a trade deficit. And that makes a big difference because in terms of countries that run a trade deficit, the only country that compared to Australia was, wait for it, Ireland. And Ireland uh, reached its record back in 2010. I think it's since slumped to about from went went from 60% of GDP as the household debt level to 120% during a so-called uh, Celtic Tiger phase, back down to 60% as the bubble burst. Australia hit 122, 123% as the household level of ratio of household debt to GDP. So we're now the world record holders amongst countries running a trade deficit. And now it's all coming unstuck uh, because the only way that whole thing worked was if more people jumped on the Ponzi escalator. And uh, as you now you pointed out to begin the, the program, house prices in Sydney, which have been rising by 10, 20 per cent per annum for some years, have now fallen by 10 per cent in one year. And they, of course, they're saying it's going to be a soft landing. Well, I'm afraid it's a soft landing like a hit missile hitting, hitting Baghdad.
0: Well, you know, markets go up the staircase and down the elevator shaft, as they uh, famously say on Wall Street, and uh, there is no saf- soft landing. But you know, uh, when you talk about Ireland and you talk about 2008 and you talk about the housing bubble, it sounds like 2008. So the question is, are we basically just picking up where we left off in 2008 with all the global bank, central bank money printing? having uh, worn off at this point and it didn't really do what they hoped it would do long term and so are we based, did we ever leave the 2008 crisis
2: steve it won't be a rerun of the 2008 crisis in the country that actually had a crisis in 2008 the ones that are going to have a 2008 star crisis now are the ones that managed to jump over it uh, jump over the puddle in 2008 by leveraging up households even more and that's fundamentally australia and canada but also china which leave it up the entire private sector, to some extent, possibly Korea. I think France is, is looking like one that's done a large amount of, of, uh, of corporate debt increase over the last uh, 10 years. So there's a range of countries which managed to sidestep the crisis by continuing to borrow private, private money, private debt. Uh, the ones that actually did the crisis back in 2008, obviously the America, but also the UK, Spain, Ireland, quite a bit of, of Europe. Those countries are in what I call the, the walking debt of debt state. They've got they had they had a debt driven bubble back in two thousand and eight. It burst then. They've reduced the debt levels a bit but nowhere near as much as they fell after the Great Depression and the Second World War. So they're carrying the, the ball and chain of debt around their ankles. They can't get much momentum up. Whenever they do, the central banks there, particularly the Fed, will believe, OK, we're back to normal days again because they ignore the role of, of debt and credit in the economy. Start putting up interest rates, which they're doing now, of course, with another rise just recently. Uh, with that increase in, in, in service charges, people are going to start no longer wanting to borrow money from banks and also trying to pay down their debt levels and go some of them go bankrupt under the debt levels they've currently got, that will mean they'll go back to deleveraging again, reducing private debt, meaning negative credit rather than the positive credit in the boom before the bust. And that will mean they, the growth will suddenly, unexpectedly fall and there'll be a need to reverse interest rate rises and the, bank, the banks, the central banks, will go back from trying to cool an overheating economy to trying to stimulate a declining one. That's what I call turning Japanese, and uh, that's the state I expect for the America, in particular, the UK as well, Europe with its added problems of the euro. So we're not going to have another 2008 crisis on a global scale. We will have a number of isolated crises in countries that avoided it back in 2008 and stagnation like the Japanese have been through for the last quarter century in those that had the crisis back in 2008.
0: All right. So that's an interesting point there. So the ones that jumped over the crisis in 2008, Australia, Canada, China, Korea, and possibly France, are the ones in line to uh, get clobbered this time. Let's focus on China for a second. You know, Australia has benefited enormously from the massive wealth creation that's happened yeah. in China. How do you see the trade war now between the US and China unfolding in 2019?
2: You've got, you got to start any comment on China by saying it's done an incredible transformation of its economy and its culture in the last 30 years. I was actually there in 81, 82. Uh, when I organised a conference between Australian and Chinese journalists, just as Deng Xiaoping had taken over. We were literally there during the trial of the Gang of Four, and it was being broadcast on loudspeakers all through Beijing. And at that stage, it was a peasant economy. No other way to describe it. Uh, the, the, state, the standard of living was extremely low. The main smell you copped in the streets of Beijing was cabbage, because people were preserving cabbage for the winter. Uh, it was a, a primitive uh, you know it advanced civilization culturally but primitive economically 30 years later it's dramatically transformed it's an industrial powerhouse it's the production planet so you know country of, of the planet uh technological development occurring at a very high rate a liberal culture to some extent with big brother sitting in the background but that big brother is more responsive to what it's people want than the countries that the West are with the the faux democracy we have in the West. So dramatic transformation. But there is a solution to when the, when the global financial crisis hit, China's exports fell by about 40%. And you had a dramatic shifting of people from all the uh, coastal cities where all the production and trade occurs, back to the rural hinterland because they, with the Chinese social security system, you were registered for a particular location. Most of the workers in the coastal fringes were converted peasants from the countryside. They had to go back to the countryside and they were not happy, putting it mildly. There was talk of revolution, talk of breaking into war, into, into warring uh, city uh, uh, states like the 18 provinces that are China could go back to being 18 separate countries. So the Chinese Communist Party basically hit the massive, biggest stimulus they could. They told their banks, which are largely state-owned, state-controlled certainly, to lend to anybody with a pulse, the increase in private debt that year in 2010 in China was roughly 40% of GDP in one year. And they went from a debt level of about 120% of GDP, this is private debt, to about 200% in a matter of five or six years. It's the fastest rate of growth of private debt ever in history, three times faster than Japan or America during their bubbles. But what it meant was a huge stimulus. Now, of course, that's built all those empty, you know, empty cities we've been seeing for the last decade now, uh, that's run out of steam. Those prices can't be sustained, they're falling over. But at the same time, the Chinese Communist Party has, has directed state level finance to say, let's build the biggest infrastructure boom in history. So you have all the high speed rail being drilled through, through China itself, which I'm looking forward to experiencing one day. Um, the, the Silk Road initiative as well, which is building you know, a conduit to Europe with Chinese workers and Chinese firms and Chinese goods being built through the countries between China and Europe. Uh, so that, that is actually, from what I've seen, equivalent to something like about 15% of GDP of spending by the government now to give that put that in concert that's three times the scale of the scale of the the new deal during the great depression and and one and a half times the scale of the obama stimulus in 2010 so that huge level of government spending is masking the collapse of the credit system
0: Oh, fantastic, Steve. Nice talking with you again. Have a great new year. By the way, how can people contribute to you
2: on Patreon? Yeah, well, they can go to the website, uh, www.patreon.com slash profstevekeen and sign up. The, the minimum sign up is a dollar a month. Maximum is a lot more than that. If you want to be generous, my basic idea is to give an amount of money that won't uh, make your spouse annoyed with you. And uh, that can support my work and keep in touch with the research I'm doing to try to give us a decent economics.
0: Is there an amount of money that... One can choose that won't make your spouse mad at you. That's an existential question for 2019. Thanks for being on the show, Steve. Thank you. That's going to do it for this edition of the Kaiser Report with me, Max Kaiser, and Stacey Herbert. I'd like to thank our guest, Professor Steve Keen. You can find him on Patreon. If you want to catch us on Twitter, it's Kaiser Report. Until next time, bye, y'all.